Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Susan McWilliams-Barnt, Professor of Politics and Chair of the Politics Department, a three-time winner of the Wig Award for Excellence in Teaching. She's an expert in American political thought and the author of such books as An American Road Trip in the American Political Thought and Traveling Back Toward a Global Political Theory. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. Well, thanks for taking the time. Um, it's a new year, a new president, uh, same old pandemic. Um, <laughs> how have you been adjusting to uh, all the craziness of these times? Um, well, I think like everybody, I'm in a constant process of adjustment. Um, I have to confess that there are certain things I like about the quarantine. <laughs> I like spending a lot of time with my children. I like not running from place to place. And I like um, being able to sit and read books, which is, of course, something I like to do a great deal. Um, I miss students, though. And so... I think like all my colleagues, uh, the one thing I miss more than anything else is just being in the classroom. So there's no way really to make up for that, though. I have been enjoying my Zoom classes more than I thought I would. Susan, take us um, a little bit back. Um, tell us about your background and your early years. I understand you have family connections to politics that go back for many generations. Um, that's right. Um, well, I, I grew up in a small town in um, central New Jersey, but uh, on my father's side in particular, the specter of politics always loomed in the background. Uh, my great-grandfather, Jerry McWilliams, was a Democratic state senator in Colorado um, before the family lost all their money uh, in the early 1900s and moved to Los Angeles. Um, my grandfather, Kerry McWilliams, then became a political journalist um, for his career, and my father was a professor of politics. Um, so I didn't really intend to go into politics, but ever since I was pretty little, um, I just loved thinking about politics. And while I really didn't imagine becoming a professor and I flirted with basically every conceivable profession around uh, the field <laughs> of politics, um, I ended up in some ways um, pretty close um, to what I think of as, as a kind of family business for lack of a better term. Um, uh, I also actually, you know, come from a pretty long line of professors on my mother's father's side. Um, uh, professors and teachers. Uh, my great-grandfather on that side was provost of UCLA. And in fact, my great aunt Betty Hedrick taught at Pomona about a hundred years ago. No um, a way. Fact I, yeah, yeah, a fact which I didn't learn until after I was already out here in Claremont looking through a kind of set of family records. Um, and of course, at that time, women weren't allowed to really be professors. So she had some title like, you know, teaching assistant or, I don't know, adjunct lady person. Um, but she, uh, she was a science uh, teacher at Pomona, I think in the years 1922 and 1923, almost 100 years ago. There's a magazine story, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you wanted to rebel and you didn't succeed. Uh, what <laughs> what, what uh, pull, kept pulling you back? What, uh, I mean, what, was there a, you know, a class, an event, a person, a mentor? Who, how did that happen? You know, I wish I thought that there was a really noble, inspirational <laughs> bit of thing there. And, and sometimes, sometimes I've told the story, which is to some degree too true, that I really didn't like graduate school, but I got um, into teaching in a summer program for high school students sponsored by the state of New Jersey. It's actually the program that PAYS is based on. Oh. And I loved it. Like being in that classroom with those students really called to me. Um, but I think in some ways, the real truth isn't so intellectual. 
Um, it's that I knew that I wanted to have a life in which I had a job and could spend time with children when I had them. And I knew from having a father as a professor that it was possible to be a professor who also was always home when my kids were done with school. And um, that trumped so many other career considerations. Um, when, I, when I made the move into the academy, the job I'd had before was working in real politics and I loved that job, right? I loved it. Um, I loved um, the people I worked with. I loved the events. I loved the cocktail parties. I loved the sense of mission and purpose. Um, but as I started thinking about what that would look like when, you know, when I wasn't any longer 23 years old, I started to realize I wouldn't want to be out every night of the week, um, you know, sipping martinis with people while somebody else took care of my children. So um, in, in a funny way, what really pushed me to being a professor, and I think this is a probably an atypical answer, is that I thought it would allow, and it's certainly proved to be true, um, me to both really be dedicated to my family and make them a priority while also being able to do the kind of public oriented work that means a lot to me. So the, I have to take you back to the to what you were saying about working in real politics. What, what campaigns were you involved in? Um, well, I worked, I actually started working on campaigns um, when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, the first so you were steeped in politics. Yeah, I, I mean, my my best friend, um, my my lifelong best friend, really, uh, who's now uh, a vice president of PR firm in DC. He and I um, bonded over a love of politics really early on. And the first campaign we worked on was the Jim Florio's 1990 campaign for New Jersey governor. Then we worked on Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign, and um, worked hard enough on that that as pretty young teenagers, we got invited to the inauguration, which was, if anything, a kind of moment that signaled to me um, how exciting it can be to work in politics. Um, uh, and then I worked on a series of campaigns um, uh, pretty much up to the point that I started graduate school. Wow. Being in inauguration that young, that, that had to be so exciting. Yeah, it was pretty epic. Um, also, we got to miss school, which was, you know, <laughs> top top notch um, for us at that point in time. I mean, I was, I mean, to be fair, I was so dorky that like the first time I ever cut school was to go sneak into an event during the 1992 campaign at the Merck headquarters to meet um, a Bill Clinton um, <laughs> with my friend <laughs> Becky. Um, uh, but yeah, we got to meet, we got to miss school and Maya Angelou um, was the um, inaugural poet. And wow. in fact, Paul and I were just reminiscing about what a powerful experience that was to be on the mall with these hundreds of thousands of people listening to Maya Angelou being piped um, across what felt like the entire city of DC. Um, so, again, when I think back to those kinds of things, the fact that I ever thought for a moment that I was going to work in anything other than a political field seems to be like, I think you're right, an act of adolescent rebellion or like deep misguidedness at best. You couldn't fight it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Susan, what drew you to Pavona and what keeps you here? Um, well, you know, my, my Pomona story is pretty funny, which is that um, when I was in graduate school, I had encountered the work of John Seary. Like it had been, I literally, this is um, how old I am becoming. Someone had given me this mimeographed copy of an essay that John Seary had written that had never been published because it was considered like too extreme for the particular edited volume of political theory. And I loved the essay and I thought, I got to meet this guy someday. So when I was in graduate school, I was dating someone who was doing research in LA and I used it as an excuse to come out to LA because it is warm here. Um, and while he was doing his research, I wrote to John Seary and said, hey, I'd really like to meet you. And he said, why don't you come out to Claremont? You can take the train. And I um, took the train out here from Union Station. And I remember walking up Yale Avenue and thinking, oh my gosh, this is the perfect place. Like this is, um, this is the dream and um, walking around campus with John and talking to other people. Um, I just, 
I just felt, I just thought this is that ideal job. And I came back from that trip and said to a number of people, it's really too bad that John Siri is such a nice guy because if he wasn't, I would wish that he would get hit by a bus so that I could take his job. Um, and little did I know that two years later, there'd be a job at Pomona and that I would get it. Um, so I really feel like I won the lottery. I've gotta be one of very few professors who's lucky enough to teach at the actual school that I had identified as my um, dream school. And, and, and I'm, I'm always grateful for whatever twists of fate landed me in that position. And John didn't even have to get hit by a bus. <laughs> and as a bonus, I didn't <laughs> have to murder John Siri. <laughs> or a train or anything. I'm sure he's grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever confess that to him? I, I believe I have, in fact, told him that. <laughs> so he's not going to be shocked when he hears this. So this is not an exclusive. <laughs> uh, Susan, you're, you're an expert in American political thought. Um, what does that field of scholarship have to tell us about where we are today in our national politics? Are we on new ground here or... Um, have you been here before? Um, well, I think the answer is yes and no. I, I'm fond of the saying that, you know, history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but history does rhyme. And I do think one of the things I've always valued about the study of American political thought is that um, it's a constant series of reminders that nothing we're facing that seems unprecedented or newly problematic is entirely unprecedented or newly problematic. Um, and, and I think that's especially important in the United States, which as Toni Morrison is beset by an epidemic of pastlessness. This is a nation in which no matter how much history we teach in the schools, people are forward looking, people have very little connection um, to ancestry, to history, um, both personal and political. And so I think, especially in this nation, American political thought is a corrective to what I take to be an American tendency to say, this is like nothing that's ever happened before in the history of all of the times. Um, what I think American political thought, you know, can remind us in this moment in particular um, is that, um, contrary to more kind of conventional pundity understandings, um, the structure of American institutions is fragile. Uh, it's experimental. Um, to a large degree, American, the American political system isn't exceptional in the sense that, like all regimes, um, maintenance uh, is an important um, uh, part of uh, just uh, the whole system. Um, there are specific things that I can point to, but um, I've been really taking a lot of um, solace and learning a lot from colleagues in American political thought, um, looking back to various moments in history, um, looking back to various debates at the time of the founding to realize that as with so many things in the United States, um, you know, we're just paying the bills for checks that were written, you know, the checks that were promised, you know, often 200, 300 years ago, um, and, and that we're part of a story, not part of a kind of dramatic rupture from what's come before. Uh, Susan, you've suggested that our political vocabulary is all jumbled up these days, that terms like liberal, conservative, socialist, and so on have lost their classic meanings. Can you break that down for us? Um, uh, sure. Um, I, I think you said it really well. Um, Americans have a really messy political vocabulary. Um, uh, we tend to categorize in ways that don't make sense. Um, this has always been a kind of American problem to riff on the theme I was just talking about. Um, when Jefferson says, or, you know, as this sort of famous moment in his presidency, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, right? He's saying, hey, look, we're making all these category distinctions in a way that forgets the fact that we're all people who are unified by the aspiration to have a basically liberal small L government that is oriented around human liberty um, in this system dedicated to the prospect, you know, proposition that all people are created equal. Um, uh, and that so our categories tend to divide us and they also tend to allow us to forget the things that we have in common. 
Um, some of the things that in particular, I think Americans get wrong is the use of the term liberal, right? What does it mean to be liberal, to be committed to liberty? Now, Americans have disagreed since there have been Americans about what liberty means. <laughs> um, and, and I think that an important part of studying um, American political thought is studying those debates about what liberty means. But liberal does not mean committed necessarily to redistributory politics, right? It doesn't mean what we often take to be liberal. Um, nor I think does conservative mean what we usually take um, to mean conservative. Um, one of the things I always enjoy teaching to my students is the very conservative, the classic conservative thinker, Edmund Burke, who's one of the great early environmentalists. You know, you go to the San Diego Zoo and you'll see quotes from Edmund Burke all over the place about how important it is to conserve nature. Right? And we never think about environmentalism as a conservative position, but of course it's a classically conservative position because it's saying we need to conserve natural resources. Um, so we tend to use liberal to mean something that it's not. We tend to use conservative to mean something that it's not. Um, and, and I'm very well aware that professors can, and we often do, um, get especially twitchy when terminology is off and to a lot of people thinking about like the definition of words isn't doesn't seem politically actually important um, but I think that part of the thing that a lot of Americans struggle with <clears throat> in everyday practice um, is trying to figure out how to have consistent political positions and so many Americans sense that political leaders don't have consistent um, ideological or political or intellectual positions, but can't figure out how to articulate that uh, because they keep being told this is what conservative means. It means this incoherent jumble of stuff. And this is what liberal means. And it means this incoherent jumble of stuff. Um, uh, and, and I think, so I think that our terminology actually impedes ordinary citizens and non-citizens for that matter, ability to understand um, what different uh, uh, ways of thinking about politics might mean and how to square certain kinds of um, uh, political positions. Um, so again, though I am professory, I do like get definition-y sometime. I do think that our fairly incoherent um, and narrowly categorizing political uh, discourse is to the detriment of the Republic as a whole, and in particular, a detriment to people's ability to participate in and understand civic life. Well, related to that, um, speaking of incoherent jumbles, um, <laughs> and this is something that, and this is something you've talked about in the past, and that um, the, for me, the pandemic has really kind of underlined, and that is, that Americans love to use the words liberty and freedom, and they don't have a clue what they really mean. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I, and I, I take my understanding of this, though plenty of American political thinkers have written about it. I, ta I take my, my bearing here, as I often do, from James Baldwin. Um, and, and the very short version of what Baldwin, to me, suggests um, is that Americans are stuck with this idea of freedom in practice starting before what we call the founding period, um, where we get this opposition of freedom and slavery, right? Where they, we have this understanding that freedom is one thing and slavery is, is its opposite. And Baldwin reminds us, of course, that's not the truth. It's not that freedom is the opposite of slavery. It's that mastery is the opposite of slavery, right? Um, it's meaningless to say in a system that there are some free and some slaves because there are some people contributing to enslavement and there are other people who are enslaved, right? Um, and Baldwin's um, uh, central critique is that so much of what Americans have internalized as an understanding of freedom is really an understanding of mastery or domination over others, right? So rather than under having a kind of true understanding of freedom um, that's egalitarian, that's spiritual, that's internal, um, that uh, has dimensions that can't be measured as well as dimensions that can, we tend to think of liberty as my right to assert myself against other people um, at the expense of other people to compete with other people. And Baldwin says, that's not a true understanding of freedom. That's an understanding of mastery. 
Um, I think there are certainly other ways that you can critique the American understanding of liberty and freedom. Um, but to me, I think especially in this moment, that's the most important kind of conceptual mistake that I certainly want my students to think about um, when we're talking about American politics. Well, I, I mean, let's segue just a little bit. I, I'm, I'm, you know, the, that notion of freedom, that American notion of freedom, um, it's hit me during the pandemic that it's, you know, with especially with the anti-maskers and with um, uh, President Trump's posturing at the time. Um, it's very tied up in this very sort of macho, super masculine kind of worldview. And, um, and that that insinuates itself into our politics. Um, and I, but for the first time now we have a female vice president who's you know, like a heartbeat away from being the leader of the free world. Um, you think that's going to have any impact on our political thinking in the future? Um, you know, I, I think it's great that we have a woman in the White House. I was sobbing when that was happening, when you know Justice Sotomayor was swearing in um, Senator Harris to become Vice President Harris. I thought that was just deeply meaningful, especially as somebody who has two children, a girl and a boy, both of whom I wanted, right? It felt important to me um, that they were able to see that at such, such a young age. Um, and, and I do think you're right that that kind of the Trumpy kind of freedom has a kind of macho overtone and, you know, um, chauvinistic, toxic masculinity. We could we could use any of those terms. Um, uh, but but I but I think that there's an underlying um, different kind of confusion of what freedom entails um, that that Trump embodies. You know, you could call it the sort of freedom mastery mistake. Um, but Trump often seemed to suggest that freedom was somehow equivalent to winning, right? You know, that winning is the Trump language. And it's um, it's actually kind of very resonant of one of the most important texts in ancient Greek political thought, Plato's Republic, where Thrasymachus, who's Socrates' great interlocutor when they're talking about what is justice. And Thrasymachus keeps advancing um, the position, look, justice in politics isn't important in practice. Winning is important, right? Winning is the thing that you do in politics because you want your side to prevail. And justice is what the people in power say it is. So winning is the important thing, right? Um, um, and, and it's a very, teaching that in the last four years has been interesting because my students see Trump in that immediately, right? It's all about winning. And um, the proof that you're free, right, is that you win. Um, again, it is this kind of dominating ethos, um, but it's certainly not um, an ethos that's exclusively the province of men. Um, I know in passing that the new congressman, woman from uh, Georgia, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, when, when, when um, uh, criticized by um, Senator McConnell just last week, she said, yeah, like, like people care about you. The only thing you know how to do is lose gracefully. Like we need to get back to winning. And I thought, wow, what kind of mother says <laughs> critique? <laughs> right? I mean, that, 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 why, why is that a problem? But in fact, that's just a different way of articulating the idea that the purpose of politics is to win and we are free to the extent that we are winning and beating other people. Um, and I think she's a very nice reminder, maybe a troubling reminder, um, that that kind of political ethos is not exclusively, though it may be a kind of macho politics, isn't exclusively the domain of men. Um, in fact, if I'm thinking about um, the rise of what many people are talking about right now, the rise of the ex sort of extreme right-wing conspiracy theory wing in the Republican Party, its most compelling salespeople right now are women um, in the form of Congressman Boebert, in the form of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and so um, while I think there's a lot of reason to be happy that a woman is in a heartbeat from the presidency, um, I don't think that we should simply assume that the ascension of women um, within the political system is going to lead to a more egalitarian or a less macho kind of politics. 
Um, in fact, I see reason to suspect that at least in some corners, the opposite might be true, that often women get used to sell really egregious forms of politics, in part because people don't assume that women um, have that kind of capacity or venality, um, right? Um, motherhood is often, a sh can be a shield um, to hide all sorts of really terrible, um, um, cruel political positions um, and to soften them. I'll pivot a little bit to the pandemic, Susan. Um, what effect do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has had on our democracy so far? And do you think it's going to have a lasting impact? Um, well, I, I think it will have... Uh, certainly a lasting impact. I think that's without question. Um, I think about just my own children right now and some of the habits that they've developed that they certainly would not have developed um, were it not for spending a critical part of their childhood unable to see their friends. And so I think there will be all sorts of um, impacts psychological, political, civic, uh, social that we haven't yet even begun to come to terms with. Um, I think in the terms of the pandemic period itself, there are some obviously very troubling things for our politics, right? You talked before about the, you know, mask versus anti-mask, vaccine versus anti-vaccine. Um, uh, the pandemic has certainly amplified that kind of, of part of our political life wherein there's on the one hand really big pockets of a kind of aggressive libertarian individualism um, not oriented toward community not oriented toward the well-being of neighbors or um, fellow citizens or fellow inhabitants of the country and deeply suspicious of all political um, uh, governmental corporate um, um, impulse, and that's obviously politically troubling. Um, it's troubling on its face. It's troubling in that it leads to higher levels of social distrust, and social distrust is in general corrosive for democratic politics. On the other hand, um, I think it's really important to note, and I don't think people have noted enough, that during this period of pandemic, there have been real outbursts of civic energy all over the place. Um, as tragic as the events are that motivated the protests this summer, right? The murder of George Floyd, the other murders that we seem to witness on an almost daily basis in this country. Um, those protests were a really pure expression of a kind of civic energy and longing to have a better civic life together. And they took place all over the country, not just in cities, not just in small towns, not just in rural areas, not just in white parts of the country, not just in black parts of the country, not just in more diverse parts of the country. Um, and, and I think that, um, uh, that, 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 that those protests showed a kind of desire for civic engagement that I take to be a very positive sign. And to some degree, I think the pandemic freed up people to, to be able to direct their attention to politics. Um, it also shouldn't escape anybody's attention that more Americans voted in the November election than have ever voted before. More young people in particular voted. Um, and, and the thing about voting and civic participation is that like everything else, it's a kind of habit, right? Um, uh, once you do it, um, it's much more likely that you'll do it again, right? Once you cross that threshold, and especially once you realize that um, the experience of protesting, even if your side doesn't win, the experience of voting and having your say, even if your side doesn't win, is exciting. It's exciting and for most people it's a kind of positive experience. And so I think that it's hard to know on balance whether the kind of bad politicsy stuff during the pandemic or the good politicsy stuff during the pandemic, uh, you know, will prevail. Um, but but I see um, you know signs to think that the pandemic has um, sort of moved moved us in both directions, both directions that I worry about and directions that I that I think we should celebrate. Let's uh, shift to something else you've written about. Um, American road trip and American political thought. I, I've always thought that was a, such an interesting insight into American thought. The sort of the quintessential American road trip that's sort of part of American mythology and part a big part of our national literature. Um, and 
you suggested it's filled with really distinctive American ideas about freedom and equality and, and um, other important concepts. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Uh Sure. Well, uh, I'll start by saying that one of the things that nobody really appreciates about the moment of the constitutional framing um, is that just as the Federalists are saying, okay, we're going to have a separation of powers, and we're going to have checks and balances, and we're going to have a federal system, they spend a lot of time saying, what's going to make this nation work? What's going to make it possible to have a kind of coherent governmental system over such a broad geographical expanse with so many people from so many different ethnic, cultural, religious backgrounds is that we're going to have a really awesome system of roads. Roads are going to allow people to travel in ways that will allow them to interact with each other. Roads are going to allow people to be able to get to government centers to be able to talk to their representatives and allow their representatives to travel to the nation's capital. And roads are going to be the thing that in some ways in practice as a matter of structure are going to allow us to do what political theory up to this point has said before is not possible, which is to have a basically democratic or Republican system across a really broad geographical expanse. Roads are the structure that are gonna do it. So roads are bound up really early on, not just in the imagination, but in actual political structure as a kind of key cornerstone of American politics. Um, and to the extent that we look at later developments like Eisenhower's development of a federal highway system, they're all expansions on that original idea in that moment of constitutional framing um, that roads are somehow definitive of American politics. Um, Americans, of course, themselves have, as you said, um, often taken roads and what they signify um, in some ways to be um, you know, constitutive of American values. Like you said, to many people, the road symbolizes freedom, right? Um, uh, to many people, the road symbolizes mobility and opportunity. Um, though I want to make very clear that my own account of American road trip stories is not this kumbaya-ish, you know, me and my bro go on the road and we <laughs> discover freedom. In fact, I think most American road trip stories in fact, even the ones like Jack Kerouac's On the Road that tend to get celebrated as like, you know, white man is free roaming around the country are actually pretty tragic stories. Um, and they tend to be stories of people who are desperately searching for community, um, who are desperately searching for a place to belong um, in a very big, very impersonal, um, very diverse political system um, where they don't necessarily have um, ancestral ties um, that bind them to a place. They don't necessarily have histories that bind them to a place. They didn't necessarily grow up in stable communities. Um, their families didn't even necessarily end up where they are because their families or their ancestors chose to be there in the first place. Um, and so I see um, road trip stories, and again, I'll, I'll reference Baldwin as, as kind of, um, the way in which Americans are consistently trying to work out what he saw as central to American politics, which is that Americans are always in the state of being confused about what it means to be an American and confused about what it means to belong within America. Think about how many debates we have in American politics that are about who belongs where, right? No, those are obviously racialized. They're obviously about class, right? They're all about all these categories that um, our students are familiar with talking about. Um, but Baldwin suggests it's more elemental than that in American politics. Um, so I see road trip stories, um, and I think it's also important to say, um, I take it as axiomatic that if you want to understand a political system, you should not be looking at things exclusively written by people in positions of power who live near centers of, to centers of power. You need to be looking at things that are written by people who are far from centers of power, who don't occupy positions of power, because they will often have a better sense of what the true political culture of a place is. And so I see road trip stories um, which have been written um, by a really wide variety of Americans um, as a way in which, in a kind of ordinary way, um, Americans are working out what it means to be an American, um, to what extent there really is freedom in America, um, and to what extent um, there really is, um, you know, a kind of 
spaces for belonging and community and connection in American politics. Um, and uh, let me just, since I have the mic here, say that um, if any of the, your listeners want to read a couple of the road trip stories that I think of as kind of central to my own thinking, um, I would recommend first um, Erica Lopez's 19, I think it's a 1994 um, book, Flaming Iguanas. Um, and I'd also recommend um, Hunter S. Thompson's um, Hell's Angels or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, both of which are different kinds of road trip stories that I think if you read um, any of those books with a mind to trying to explain to yourself what's going on in American politics, um, even somebody um, who's fortunate enough not to be trained in political theory, right, um, can find lots there um, to, to think about um, in terms of what it means to be an American and what it means um, to occupy a political position in this particular state. Susan, one of the authors that you cite in the book we were just talking about is Mark Twain. And we know you have a personal connection with Twain from childhood. Can you tell us tell us how that started and how it continues to be part of your life? Um, sure. Uh, my father, who, as I mentioned, was a professor of political science at Rutgers for a long time, was a scholar of Mark Twain. Um, uh, and so Twain was a really important figure in the background of my childhood. I got read a lot of Twain. And when I was probably about 10 years old, uh, my father got the Quarry Farm Fellowship at the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College in Elmira, New York, um, which is a really neat um, a fellowship, which just allows a scholar of Mark Twain to go to Twain's house in Elmira, which is where Twain wrote a number of his most famous works and spend the summer uh, working on something related to Mark Twain. And so I got carted up to Elmira as a child um, <laughs> and spent some time in Mark Twain's house, um, which is something that at the time um, I didn't really understand in any way the significance of. Um, my parents were very conscious of not wanting me to grow up with a certain kind of academic pressure, though it was definitely there <laughs> despite their best efforts. Um, and it was only much later that I returned to Twain and not only sort of re-fell in love with um, Twain, who I think is a really complicated figure who people often get wrong when, when they think about um, and, uh, and, and started to think about doing my own work on Twain. Um, my father died before he could finish uh, his book on Mark Twain. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm going to be doing first on my next sabbatical is to finish that book. Oh, wow. um, and the kind of happy postscript there is that a couple summers ago, I applied for and got the same fellowship um, and got to go back to Twain's house in Elmira and spend a week there. Um, going through some of the transcripts of lectures my dad had given um, during the summers that he was there working on Twain. So um, hopefully uh, I will be able to bring to fruition what my father worked very hard um, to bring to fruition. Though I will say, I feel this feeling now too, and I, and I suspect that my father did as well, that working on Twain is so much fun and it's so complex and you so want to get it right. Um, that it's hard to let it go um, <laughs> because you don't want to not be working on it anymore. So I suspect that as is, was the case with my dad, that Twain will be with me for, for a long time. So while I was um, getting ready for this interview, I watched again your convocation speech from 2018. Um, and um, my favorite quote is about... Um, liberal arts education being an education of the arts of liberty. Can you talk to us about what you mean by that? Well, I mean, one of the things that I think, and again, my, my um, you know, frame of reference here is mostly um, American political thinking. Um, liberty and the idea of liberty, as I said, is obviously central to our politics. I think also um, liberty, some degree of liberty is essential for a good life. Um, and yet Americans in particular, I think, tend to assume that like liberty is something that you're just born with, right? And that other people have to take it away from you um, for you to not have it. Um, by contrast, I follow thinkers like Alexis de Tocqueville who say actually um, liberty and learning to be free, um, it's, 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 it's not just something you're given, it's something that you have to cultivate. 
Um, and some of that is a kind of, uh, let's say, more refined, less obviously political cultivation, like learning how do you live with other people, right? How do you carve out a space in community with other people where you still feel like you're able to be yourself? That's the kind of thing that we're really good at helping people at schools like Pomona to understand because you have to live in a dorm with other people, not all of whom you like, not all of whom's habits jibe with yours, not all of whom have the same cultural reference points. Um, um, and so there are those kinds of habits that we need to learn if we really want to live in a free society and cultivate our own freedom. Um, there are also, of course, and I didn't elaborate this I mean, there's a limit to what one can say in a 10 minute convocation speech, <laughs> but there are also like more obvious political facts, like not all of us politically are equally free because of the histories of violence and domination and oppression that exist in every society uh, in the world. So how do we think about um, those rules, both formal and informal? How do we work against them in the service of liberty, not just for ourselves, but um, for our fellow human beings? Um, again, those are kinds of things. You're not born knowing how to do that. <laughs> um, you need to learn how to um, advocate for yourself, how to advocate for other people, how to communicate across differences, how to form coalitions. Again, I think that's something that's very much in the water at small liberal arts colleges um, because you are thrust into these uh, situations um, with lots of different people who you have to work with, who you have to negotiate, who you have to live in common with, um, both professionally and personally. It's a really intense, often difficult experience, frankly. Um, but even aside from the kind of academic content that we teach in classes, which does touch on all those things, communication, working together, self-advocacy, dealing with people in positions of power, being in a room with lots of other talented people and making yourself heard and listening to them. Um, it's also beyond the classroom in terms of um, uh, the residential framework of the campus um, and our belief that students participate meaningfully in the governance of the college. Um, so when I say the liberal arts are about the arts of liberty, that's a lot of what I have in mind. Um, that liberty isn't a given, we can never take it for granted in human life. Um, and it should be a key part of education um, for everybody um, in, a in a liberal society, well, frankly, and I would say, or not, in any society, think seriously um, and to develop certain kinds of habits um, that will both lead to freer societies, but will also um, lead um, to freer individuals and freer communities. Um, so I do think, I wanna say sort of two side points here. One of which is, no, I don't think that everybody in the country needs to go to a small liberal arts college to be a fully realized human being, right? Um, I wish there were more small liberal arts colleges, which is gonna be my second side point. Um, but I always do worry, especially given the fact that this kind of small liberal arts college experience is increasingly the province of fewer and fewer, more and more fortunate people, um, that those of us in these institutions will start to think um, in ways that are fundamentally undemocratic about people who don't attend these kinds of institutions. Um, and so I think, you know, at, at, it's up to those of us in these kinds of institutions um, to try to translate and transmit and share and give back and extend the reach of the kinds of things that we're able to experience because of our good fortune to be in this place. Um, but it's also important not to, th to think that, um, you know, you need to go to a place like this to have those kinds of realizations. You know, James Baldwin himself, from whom I take most of my understanding about what it means to be a free person, didn't go to college at all. Um, and so I think, I think that's an important caveat to um, um, my love of these kinds of institutions. The second side note is I think it really should trouble people that the liberal arts um, are under attack and on the decline. And perhaps the greatest cost of the pandemic um, will be um, the cost to liberal arts education. Um, we're seeing that both in terms of small liberal arts colleges themselves closing. One of my favorite small liberal arts colleges, Guilford College in North Carolina, um, uh, almost folded entirely its entire liberal arts program just about a month ago. More schools have done that and more schools will be doing that. Um, but also a lot of state and public schools are cutting back on their liberal arts course offerings in favor of much more narrow technical training. Um, uh, I think that's bad for the reasons that I've said, but also bad um, in the sense that 
especially when we're talking about small liberal arts colleges, small liberal arts colleges tend to have much better outcomes with students who come from first or first generation in their family to go to college, um, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds in other ways, in part because the scale of our lives make it, it that much harder for people to fall through the cracks. Um, and so both in the headier intellectual sense, but also in the like real civic, like we're talking about the actual lives of our actual fellow members of, you know, not just the United States, but other countries around the world. The decline of the liberal arts is really troubling um, in that I think we're entering a period, well, actually we've already been in this period for 20 years, but we're seeing an acceleration of the period um, of a kind of two tiering of education, higher education in America, where there's gonna be a very narrow band of very fortunate people who are able to dedicate serious time um, to thinking about all of the things that go into cultivating what I would call the arts of liberty and more and more people who are shut out from that um, uh, and who are not afforded um, even a similar kind of education. Um, you know, I, I, I Public universities are especially important to me because, you know, until me in uh, among the McWilliamses, everyone had gone to public universities. It was public and it was the UC system that educated my father, the child of a, a single mother. It was the UC system that educated my grandmother and her sisters when most private schools weren't educating um, women, especially not women who couldn't afford schools like Wellesley and Mount Holyoke. Um, and so, so I think that. Um, one of the things that I'm going to be really concerned about uh, in the next, um, I imagine for the rest of my career will be what I see as the like um, speeding up of the erosion of liberal education um, in the United States. And the pandemic has probably exacerbated, accelerated that. Yeah, the pandemic is accelerating that, no doubt. Um, lots of state legislatures, lots of college boards are using it as an excuse to um, push through changes that have, you know, been debated for 10 years, whether that's um, doing away with the protections of tenure or doing away with majors or doing away with entire schools of arts and sciences in favor of programs um, that are short-term money makers, but like long-term, uh, you know, uh, long-term to the disservice of the students in the program. Um, uh, and, and I think, I think that's, that, that's really worrisome. Um, hopefully at the very least in the next couple of years um, with the Biden administration, we'll see some pulling back of um, for-profit uh, higher education, which has been part of the story of the evisceration of um, public education. Um, but beyond that, I don't have much hope that we can count on um, the federal government, government in red states or blue states um, uh, to, to really uh, be leaders on this. Um, and so, um, I'm not particularly optimistic, but I do think that especially those of us at institutions like Pomona, where we're so fortunate um, to be in the position we are, um, we have some obligation um, to try to think about how we can support and sustain um, our colleagues um, our, uh, and, you know, in some ways the Republic in terms of supporting um, um, other public and private um, institutions of higher education. I know so, we have to... I have one more question. One more question. Yeah. I know we have to wrap this up, um, but as a chair of politics, I wanted to ask you this, Susan. Um, I know your choice of, of following politics was complicated by family history, but why should an incoming student at Pomona or elsewhere consider majoring in politics? Well, I think the study of politics is, as Aristotle called it, the architectonic, right? The architectonic form of study. Um, there's almost nothing else that you can... Um, pursue in the world um, in full without an understanding of the political dynamics that lie underneath that. Um, you can play that out in all sorts of different ways. Um, it's not just that professions have internal politics to them or that personal relationships have power dynamics to them, though of course they do. Um, it's that um, the laws, um, the systems, the institutions, the formal structures, all of the things that make everything else possible that you take for granted in your daily life have something to do with political decisions that have been made by people at some point in time. 
Um, and so I think it's a fundamental tool of um, empowerment and understanding of your world to have facility in the study of politics. Uh, my friend Ben Dworkin, who uh, runs the public policy school at Rowan University in New Jersey, says everybody has to know enough politics to be just a little bit dangerous. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and I think that what Ben says there is about right. Um, if you know, and W.E.B. Du Bois says this in a you know, much more refined way than I think Ben or I are inclined <laughs> to do, um, if you understand politics, um, you are, have, um, even in non-explicitly political circumstances, you have a kind of knowledge that allows you to advocate for yourself, to advocate for other people, um, to see what forces are in play and to be able to play with them. Um, and you can do that both in the service of empowering yourself and others, but also in the service of that old political term justice um, and making a more just world. Um, our politics majors at Pomona go on to do so many different things. Very few of them go to be, um, you know, when people say you major in politics, parents always say, what are you going to be, a politician? <laughs> Very few of our students become politicians, though, of course, some of them do. They become journalists, they become teachers, um, they work in tech, they work in um, they work as doctors, uh, they work as sports broadcasters, they work all over the place, they own businesses, they work in finance. Um, and part of the neat thing I will say um, in passing about the pandemic is that we've brought a lot of our politics alums back via Zoom to talk to our students. And they all now in these very different professional fields and in these very different um, places in the world, all can tie these uh, things that they've done back to what they studied in some way in the politics department, whether that's because they learned skills of leadership or because they learned skills of resistance or because um, they learned about something much more specific. Um, but to me, I think politics in some ways is one of the classical liberal arts major where we really give you time not just to think in the abstract about things like liberty and freedom and self-actualization, but in practice, um, you know, how do you um, move through the world and understand the systems that you encounter um, in a way that allows you to work with them, to work against them, and, you know, every so often to conquer them and um, take things over when they need some taking over. Well, that note, we're going to have to wrap this up <laughs> very reluctantly. Um, we've been talking with Professor Politics, Susan McWilliams Barr. Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much, guys. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.